Hello, everyone. You are listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Welcome to day two of the annual FHS meeting and symposium event, the latest collaboration between UCF and FHS. Day one was absolutely amazing. And please go check out episode 21, which is day one of the event, and to hear all those amazing interviews I had with um, multiple panelists and people that were part of the event. It was great. So please go check that out. This is part two of the event, day two, and same format. It's little conversations, little chats I had with people that were presenting in day two. And these individuals uh, were the following. So I want to give a special shout out to Dr. Claire Strum and Dr. Rose Byler. That was the first interview I conducted. Jared Freeline and Jacob Finnegan, that was the second interview I conducted. Olivia Aldridge and Lisa Latenen, that was the third interview I conducted. Sarah Bousfield, that was the fourth interview I conducted. And the fifth interview I conducted uh, was part of the, the final panel, which uh, was Christopher Mindell and Dr. Scott French. So as you can see, a lot of dynamic duos, um, you know, uh, you know, dynamic duos, twos, you know, day two uh episode 22 2022 uh i i didn't do this on purpose um this is just kind of how it happened but it's pretty cool uh, how the numbers kind of align interesting um so yeah so a special shout out to all of them for taking a little bit time of their busy day to chat with me and to talk about their panel presentations and to give you all a glimpse of how um the vibe and the essence was of this awesome important significant special event timestamps for the following interviews are in the description so if you just want to skip through or or see someone specific whatever the case may be it's in the description so enough of me talking and cue that music Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here Dr. Claire Strom from Rollins College, Dr. Rose Byler from the University of Central Florida. I'm going to pass the microphone to each of you, and I uh, would like for you to explain to our listeners uh, what you do specifically. I am a historian of um, at Rollins. I teach United States history. My research is on global cattle history. Um, I'm a historian of early American history and Atlantic history, and my research is on migration in the early modern Atlantic world. So you both were part of a panel that was talking about journal articles and you know the process of publishing in journals. Um, so can you both briefly explain uh, some of the highlights and focal points of your panel presentation? Okay, well, why don't I start with choosing a journal and then you can do the review process. So when you're thinking about choosing a journal, a journal to publish your article, you should think about obviously what type of history the journal publishes. You should think about the ease or difficulty of submitting to that journal. So the more prestigious, the harder it will be to get an article published. 
Um, and then once you've identified a couple of journals, you should reach out and talk to editors and see if they would be interested in your research. When the time comes to submit, and this is really important, only submit to one journal. And then, Rose, you want to walk through the, pub, the review process? Sure. So when you've decided which journal you want to submit to, the first thing you do is to go to the website and look for the um, submission processes and you send your manuscript in. Um, the editors will usually review it and send it out to peer reviewers. Um, we usually use a double-blind peer review process, which means that the reviewers do not know who the author is and the author does not know who the reviewers are. Um, after the reviewers return their assessments of the manuscripts, um, the editors will then usually send out to the authors those reviews. And the decisions that are made usually are to um, accept an article, uh, to revise and resubmit it, or to reject it. And so the editors will also usually give some feedback on those reviews and explain a little bit why the decision has been made. Um, as as it has been made. I don't think we got much beyond that. We were hoping to get at the rest of the, the editorial process, but we had an excellent round of uh, conversations with questions and answers. Awesome. Um, I guess my next question would be, what would be some of the biggest advice you would give to grad students or young up-and-coming scholars in the histo history field um, for, that want to publish in journals? I think, first of all, be ready for some fairly frank criticism and that, and understand that that's useful and helpful. Um, a dissertation or a seminar paper are not publishable as is. And the only way you will be able to move your work forward is by getting that feedback. Um, and most of the time, at least with me, it always made me cry. Um, but then afterwards, I was able to sit down and look at it and be like, okay, I know how I can do this. I know how I can fix this. So that would be my first bit of advice. And I completely agree 100% with what Claire just said. I think my other piece of advice is that um, the reviewers, in my experience, are genuinely interested in furthering the field. And so after you pick yourself up off the floor, they really do have your best interests at heart. And even though their reviews may be frank, um, I think... Uh, paying attention to what they say. You can't always do everything. The editors will often point you in the direction of which of their uh, pieces of advice that you should follow. Um, but paying attention will really make your article stronger. And they have your best interests and the field's best interest at heart. Several times in the panel presentation, you both mentioned the historiography of a journal article. Can you briefly explain to our listeners what that really means? Right. So historiography is the history of history. So when it comes to a journal article, what we are looking for is for you to engage in a conversation with scholars who have written around your topic. So, for example, if I was writing a, an article on the history of the Civil War in Florida and I didn't reference other people who've written on the Civil War in Florida, uh, I would not be situating my argument and showing why it was important. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's just really critical in a journal article that you are framing your argument in a way that 
situates it in that conversation, but also that is acknowledging the work that has gone on before. We're all writing sort of on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so um, we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. Um, we need to acknowledge the work that has gone on before us. And then we need to show how we're expanding or questioning or offering something new to add to our collective knowledge about the topic. So for me, that historiography is really about um, adding a new bit to that conversation and acknowledging what has been said before and ex and, and explaining, oftentimes in the introduction to an article, um, what it is that you're adding to the conversation. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to say in the session was not often historiography is placed early in an article, but it can be infused throughout as you expand on your topic um my final question for both of you it's a two-parter um i find it really interesting that within the panel in the q a session um multiple people were talking about you know the history of journal articles and how it's been unfair so my first part to the question is um where do you see the trajectory of journal articles and the, and the whole process in the future and um do you think it will still be unfair? So I think it being unfair is perhaps, I'm not sure that that would be a word I would have chosen. Um, I think that different stages of a career bring different challenges. So when you are a newly minted PhD, um, you're trying to establish yourself, you're trying to get a reputation as a scholar. And if you are trying to get promotion, you need very specific things depending on what institution you're at. And so that gives you a whole bunch of requirements that an older scholar might not have. Um, equally, as Saki was talking about, an older scholar has established themselves, so they are getting invited to write pieces which are not peer-reviewed. And so he was saying, and I think tongue-in-cheek, that that's unfair because they are assessed differently. Equally, he's a full professor, so it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would also not have chosen unfair as as the word to use. Um, I do think that the the process is a rigorous one, and so that it may sometimes feel unfair. Um, but I think that the you asked about where it's going in the future. I don't think journal articles are going away. I don't think journal scholarly journals are going away. Um, and so I think that there are lots of questions about how accessible they are. Um, but I think that they're not going away. And um, I think one of the points that Saki was making is that they have they have shifted in how editors handle the process. And I would think that they are probably um, more perhaps I shouldn't say that because I don't know. I, I, this is not my firsthand experience. Based on what he was describing, um, they are more professionalized now than they might have been in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and I do think that the experience I've had with journals, um, that the, the process of the editorial process and the process of peer review has become very professional. I also think that as you become a more established 
scholar, you learn how to do it better, right? I mean, your first journal article is terribly hard because you've never written one. But by the time you're writing your eighth or ninth, you kind of know how to do it. So it becomes easier and you have a bigger network. It becomes easier to get accepted, I think. And I would just add to that, I guess this goes back to your tips question, right? I think one of the tips I would give is to take a look at the articles in a journal that you're thinking about publishing in, but also just in scholarly journals in your discipline. In history, there's a way that you write a journal article, and by paying attention as you're reading an article to the structure, to the form, to to how authors develop their arguments and just becoming attuned to that, you add to that experience that you gain as you're writing as well. I'm glad you both clarified the word unfair because that wasn't my word either. It was just what the audience was saying. Um, and I agree with both of you that maybe unfair wasn't the right term there. And I'm again, I'm glad you both clarified it. And I also agree that journal articles aren't going away anytime soon. Um, they're imperative to the field. Um, but this will be my last question, I promise. I lied. <laughs> is that you guys are so great. This is awesome. You guys are giving amazing answers. Um, with that, when you guys said um, that journal articles won't be going away, it reminded me of something you specifically mentioned of uh, history to a broader audience. And you could correct me if I'm wrong, but you said you think the profession will be destroyed if we keep limiting that scope. So can you please uh, expand on that to our listeners? Because one could argue what we're doing right now is kind of that. And, you know, that's why I value this medium. So, Absolutely. And I, I don't think this is limited to history, but I think we are particularly bad uh, at this in that um, the currency of historians are books. And these monographs are read by a very, very small audience. So we basically sit in a room and talk to each other. And that means that history, although so many people love history, you never like run into somebody at a bar who says, oh yes, my passion is sociology. But people are frequently very passionate about history. And so why aren't we talking to them? Why aren't we bringing our scholarship and all our marvelous stories to them? And that is what we need to do if we're gonna keep the field alive. And there, I really do think that journals have an opportunity to do some of that. And that is, um, so the journal that I'm co-editing, we just created a website where we're, we are um, we are also editing and publishing short form blog post features. We would like to do more different forms of media. We're still in our early, early stages, so we haven't quite figured out how to do that. But I do think that, um, and, and certainly just publishing on the web doesn't mean that we're going to automatically reach public audiences. Um, but I do think that journals do have an opportunity to provide vehicles for scholars to reach that public audience. And I, I feel passionately about that. I agree 100% percent. Um, as historians, we must reach those broader, as academic historians, we must reach those broader audiences. Um, and I think failure to do that is, is a major failure on the part of the academy. And I, I, I like to believe that we're seeing some shifts happening there. Um, and I hope those shifts continue and become even more stronger. Yeah, I hope so too. And um, that's one of my goals because, you know, it, I'm passionate about history since long time ago and um now i'm gonna do it as a career and but i also know not only my generation but the trends that we're going in in communication and media and um and telling stories and podcasting has become widely popular 
Um, so that's this is kind of one way of me trying to uh, express my passion of history to wider audiences because it's important. Um, so uh, thank you both for having. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm delighted that this is your passion and good for you for doing it. Yes. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here... Jared Friedlein. Jacob Finnegan. Hello, guys. Nice to meet you, and you guys had an amazing panel presentation. Um, they both presented in Panel 10, U.S. Color Troops in Florida, and their title of their project specifically was Alusti, Remembering Black Soldiers Who Made the Ultimate Sacrifice. Um, I would like for you guys to explain to me and the audience... Um, the main highlights and your involvement, because I know you guys were a team. That's what made this panel so interesting. It was a, a team event. Um, so you can explain your roles and your involvement with this project. Okay. Um, my involvement with the project is I'm doing mostly the research of the project, going in, diving into the archives, finding the information about these soldiers. That's primarily my goal, going to the National Archive, going online archives, going ancestry. And finding documents that ties everything with philosophy. I actually went to um, North Carolina University to grab a master's thesis on the 8th US um, and 35th USTC to understand where they come from and how they interacted before the war after, and after the war and even during this battle of Alustis. And uh, my section was mainly involved with a review of the archaeological processes, what the archaeological issue currently is with the mass grave that's located on the Alusti State uh, Battlefield, as well as our sort of way to address this problem, uh, what constraints we have with going back in and trying to do excavations, uh, and how we're going to get the community involved to lead us forward and restore the justice of these men. Um, what do you guys think is the significance of a project like this? Why is it so important? The significance of this project is to get the public awareness. That's the major goal for any public history project, is to get the public, the local, the federal, the national public, interested in this type of research. Any public, if with this um, research um, specifically, is to get justice for these people that laid their lives for a free United States that we have today. And after our public history initiative, we have a mission to restore these men uh, to their proper honor and burial, as is required by the federal government uh, uh, due to many public laws and other bills that have been passed. And largely this is because it is a current injustice because they are still located in a mass grave on the state uh, park. Where does the, the project currently stand, and what's the future of the project right now? The current um, standing of the project is get more information about these people. The personal information is key because we can tie names to the bodies and the story of these people. And I believe the future is to get a memorial for them, a freestanding memorial that represents their sacrifice to the, to the United States and to their communities across the nation. And to be able to accomplish that research 
goal, largely we also need to have a secondary goal of making sure the community is reinvested in this project. Um, and as was addressed in the panel, we understand that Civil War memory is often a very, how do you say, busy because of all the information that can be out there, uh, both misinformation and uh, historical information. Uh, so what we want is to then be able to get these community members to Cemetery Association, uh, the Orlusty Citizen Support Organization, and again, the state and federal government, which have obligations to these men to come in and to actually restore them from their position. Thank you, Jared and Jacob. I really appreciate um, having this quick chat with me. And um, I also um, am grateful for you guys' involvement with this project. I think it's very important, and I'm glad you guys are taking it up. So thank you. Thank you very very much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here Olivia Aldrich. I'm in the grad program for a history master degree. I'm Lisa LaPena. I'm a public history uh, master's student. Hello um, to you both, and again, I appreciate you both for sitting down with me really quick to have a conversation about your panel presentation, which was very fascinating. You both were part of panel 13, session four, lightning round, uh, future Florida research. But um, I would like for you to um, name the title of your presentation to our audience. And then afterwards, you pass the mic to each other and basically run through some of the highlights um, and main focal points of your panel presentation. Uh, the title was just Seminole War Foundations. Frank Laumer Library Collection. We worked on cataloging the uh, research materials of Frank Laumer, a lay historian on the Seminole Wars. We pretty much just talked about our um, our role at the Seminole Wars <laughs> Foundation and um, what we were tasked to do, which was um, catalog and archive the collection of materials that Frank Laumer um, amassed during his 60-year a career studying the Seminole Wars Foundation. Um, and it was really exciting because it was a personal archive. Um, it wasn't in in an academic setting. It was um, entirely done basically just because he was passionate about the subject. He had no formal training. Um, he just had a ton of questions, um, and he was relentless in getting the answers to those questions, meaning that he emailed, or later he emailed, but he would write letters and um, call anyone he could um, multiple times, if necessary, to get the answers he was looking for. Um, that said, he did collect a ton of information. So it was up to us to navigate that collection and to um, get a sense of how we can organize it and digitize it in a way that future scholars or anyone who's interested in the history of the Seminole Wars, um, how they can take what we made, um, this record of all the information that he has, how it can be useful to other researchers. How did you both get involved in a process, like in a project like this? Um, like what was the, how'd you guys come up with the idea of doing something like this and who helped you along the way? You know, those, those sort of things. 
Uh, we undertook the internship as part of like a course requirement with UCF. We got credit for it. So we um, talked with Dr. Scott French, who runs the internship program for the grad students at UCF. And he kind of assigned us to the Seminole War Foundations because they did have this giant collection that really needed help being processed and cataloged. Um, when we got there, um, Lisa discussed how we were overwhelmed by the sheer amount of materials there were. Uh, our director, Patrick Swan, um, encouraged us to find something we were interested in and run with it. And so uh, in talking with UCF archivists to get kind of an idea of what to do, we decided to start just taking an inventory. And that's where the inspiration for that came from. And then as we took the inventory, we came across cool stories. Um, the main focal, Our main focal point being that of Ransom Clark and his exhumation. Um, it was just a really big research strain for Laumer. It was probably the highlight of his career to be able to exhume that grave. Um, and we have very uh, interesting photos from the exhumation. It occurred in 1977. And just the story that emerged through the documents between Laumer and uh, Ransom Clark is the most interesting facet of that internship. What um what's the significance of a project like this um in general um individually in your prospective careers but also uh, more broadly in um, Florida history and culture? Um, well, more broadly in Florida history and culture, um, I'm born and raised in in Florida uh, down in Port St. Lucie, but I. To be honest, my knowledge of Florida history is very minimal. Um, I don't. Growing up in the Port St. Louis or the Florida school system um, is a little bit of a nightmare. Um, so finding this uh, archive, these resources, is so valuable um, for Florida history because because it's so extensive um, and. Laumer just pursued every avenue possible in finding all kinds of information. What was the weather like that day? Um, <laughs> what did the soldiers, what were they wearing? You know, what weapons were they using? Um, and so this information, it's just the wealth of it, I think, um, really can contribute to the existing body of work especially regarding um, military history um, and things like that. Also in that it shows how public historians are, uh, how lay historians work, and that history is not just um, for academic historians to look at. Public historians are very good at it, can do it, and the public should be involved as well, which Laumer is a great example of. What were some uh, challenges and um, difficulties throughout this process? There was just a lot of documents to go through and nothing had really been done besides just being housed in different areas, which kind of affected us more in the long run. Um, there's this archival concept of original order, which Laumer had, you know, organized his collection while he was alive a certain way. And when it was transferred to the new site, it was not organized in the same manner. So... That made it difficult for us to kind of navigate, all right, where should this research go? Why is this important to be here? Because that's how he had intended it to be. Um, we also ran into document, you know, um, quality problems. So some of these documents were discolored from being uh, exposed to weather, humidity, um, not being housed in archi archival grade 
areas like um, acid-free folders and stuff like that. Uh, some had debris in it from being transferred um, and also because part of the collection was housed in Laumer's garage for much of his life. And some of them just had um, general decay, were hard to read, and that made it difficult for us to understand how to document these materials within our finding aid system because we didn't even know what some of them said half the time. Yeah, I think that was my um, biggest challenge was we had access to all of these materials of all different kinds, um, but I it was hard to make sense of them. Um, I'm, I'm looking at these materials, I'm, I'm trying to read them, but I'm having a hard time understanding what they mean. Um, and so uh, creating the notes for the finding aid for these items, I'm just making my best guess. Um, I'm, I come from a background of uh, art and music and I'm very much interested in cultural history. I'm not well versed in pretty much anything else. <laughs> um, so that was definitely a struggle. Um, I just used my best practice. I took uh, notes of dates, names, and general uh, topics to kind of navigate through the uncertainty, I guess. My final question to you both is, um, what advice do you have for undergraduate students like myself, but also everywhere else, not just in UCF, um, since you both are in graduate school for history? In terms of internships, definitely seek out expert advice or advice from your professors as soon as possible. It'll help you save on time, uh, especially if you're overwhelmed. Reaching out to your professors is going to be your best bet with anything, any circumstance, assignments, just life in general. Um, your professors are there to help. That is what they're for. Um, my advice would be uh, to be nice to yourself. Take it easy. Um it will get better. It'll get a lot easier to navigate. Um, of my first semester in grad school was so um, traumatic, just because it was entering into this whole new world of academia. Um, but you'll get the hang of it. Um, just I know be confident is like saying that is easy, um, but try to believe in yourself a little bit and uh, you'll you'll get there things will start making sense <laughs> eventually yeah eventually well thank you to you both for sitting down with me and having this uh, small little conversation i i really appreciate it so thank you thank you thank you <laughs> hello everyone this is sebastian garcia from knight's history cast and i have with me here Sarah Bousfield. Hello, Sarah. Sarah was part of session four, panel 13, which was the lightning round, uh, Future Florida Research, and her presentation was specifically titled Baking the Past. So, um, Sarah, I would like for you to uh, briefly explain to our listeners some of the main highlights and focal points of, of your panel presentation today. All right, so the majority of my panel presentation was just kind of addressing the uh, history of my, uh, well, the, the history of the kitchen, of kitchen technology in the 19th century and then my own current hope to study uh, 
the um, the in creation of the modern oven at an uh, era that I perceive to be earlier than what most people do, which is the modern oven of the 1950s, um, well, modern kitchen of the 1950s. I'm trying to examine um, the correlation between developments in technology at the beginning of the second industrial revolution and the uh, um, the transition into you know the the iconic kitchen technologies that we see in our kitchens today. So everything from stoves, ovens, uh, examining, you know, um, egg beaters, things that, you know, people typically have just kind of walked by or utilized in their daily life that have a longer history and something that, you know, is um, a little bit more uh, elaborate than they might suspect. Yeah, I find it fascinating um, when you were showing the images uh, in in your PowerPoint uh, panel presentation of the 19th century kitchen. And I really do like how you're doing this work because, yeah, a lot of people just associate the modern kitchen with the 20th century Um, and rightfully so. But it's it's kind of a, a disgrace to not look further than that, you know, in the 19th century where it really started. So and then when I really saw those pictures, because I don't, haven't really seen 19th century kitchen pictures before. I was like, this is awesome. So, yeah, the, your work fascinates me. Um, what were some of the challenges that you went through during this process and uh, in this project that you're undertaking? So my background is primarily in living history. And so studying kitchen technology is something that I have unknowingly kind of been doing for the better part of a decade. Um, and I have really kind of run into this roadblock of everything being over 150 years old. Uh, And and so the problem that I continuously see is just this is – this is an, a period of time that people have kind of relegated to the past and, and you know, in because, you know, electricity has kind of, um, you know, made a lot of these products ob- like seemingly obsolete and you only see them in museums. So I, a lot of the, the issues that I have, especially with dealing with material culture, things like, you know, ovens and stoves and, you know, a lot of these are coal burning, which a lot of people feel very uncomfortable burning coal in their home um, or, uh, you know, wood burning stoves, which are safer. But admittedly, I myself have literally set myself on fire a couple times when learning to, to utilize this technology. So it's not exactly the safest um, and I, ideally, I, you know, while I would like to, you know, do more of a material culture study, there's not a lot of museums, especially here um, in Florida, where it gets hot, who really want a wood burning stove on long enough to do the research that I want to do. So I'm trying to focus more on the technology rather than what I've been really interested in, which is actually, you know, the product of processing. So the food that you're creating yourself. Yeah. Um... And I, and I want to ask, because I find it also highly interesting that uh, social media played a part in your um, project. And um, I'm going to give you a shout out here. It's uh, your blog and Instagram is at Baking the Past, uh, which when the picture you showed us has 741 followers, which I think is impressive. Um, I've tried to start, you know, little Instagram pages of myself with history. And it's it's difficult to get that many followers, what I'm saying. So uh, I congratulate you. Um, so yeah, how, how, how has social media and other forms of, uh, communications and technology has influenced your, your project? It's been pretty much the founding tenant of everything that I've been doing. Um, I really could not do what I'm doing without social media. And I think that that's, um, it's a very common 
like some, something that's commonly overlooked by a lot of people in the field because a lot of people in history or no offense to all of them who are listening, but older. And so utilizing social media may be, may be kind of a barrier for them. Um, and I think that for me, it's actually an asset. So I started the blog originally in 2019 when I wasn't going to school. I was really, I, I, I missed baking. I missed being in museums because I had previously been a historical interpreter. And then when I moved to Florida, I wasn't, I was, I had a different full-time job. And so I, um, I kind of used this as sort of, you know, just uh, something uh, like a hobby to do on the weekends. But then when I went to school, it really turned into something bigger because I was able to connect with people who were both, you know, traditional historians who were studying the things that I was studying, this emerging field of food history that's only been around really since the 1970s in like in, in any sort of like professional form. And then I uh, and it also enabled me to connect with people who were also hobbyists like me who just wanted to create historic recipes on the weekends and try to make them taste good. Um, and so it's this wonderful interdisciplinary connection between history, archaeology, you know, um, liter like literature, people who, who just really enjoy food. And it's, uh, and, and so it's this, this, I, I couldn't do it without it. And it's, um, and I'm really glad that like, I can, I can, I can consider so many people um, on my Instagram who I follow and who follow me, this wonderful little social network of just like friends. I have people all over the world. I have friends in Egypt now who, um, who've, you know, helped me translate 14th century cookbooks and I, I couldn't do anything without them. So it's pretty amazing. That that's, that's so awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. And and you gained a new follow follower here. I'll follow you immediately after. And everyone that's listening to, to this episode should go follow your page because, um, it, it's important work, you know, um, some would say I, I love food too much, but <laughs> and, and history is important and combining both. Yeah, why not? You know, it's an important thing and it could be another way of seeing how society was in that time and technology, how it's advanced. Um, um, this might be a little bit of a silly question, um, maybe too obvious, but I still, you know, have you in front of me. So I'm going to go shoot it. Um, how has your culinary background really shaped not just this project, but the trajectory of your career? Well, I learned how to cook on a wood-burning stove. Um, I didn't learn how to cook in a 21st century oven. I mean, like any, I feel like a lot of kids these days, you know, when we're kind of growing up as teenagers, like we're like, yeah, I can make, you know, macaroni and cheese in the microwave or I can cook ramen. Um, but uh, when you have to take a more active role in the creation of food or else you're not gonna have lunch at your job that day, um, you get more interested. And I think that it's definitely changed the way that I see cooking as a whole because, um, I didn't before have um, kind of a, a giant like cooking uh, setup, and um, now my kitchen is the <laughs> most cluttered room in the house um, because no matter what I'm making, I need you know a range of different tools and uh, and different technologies, and many of them are modern that I've kind of um, kind of hacked to be more <laughs> to be older, um, but uh, to do the things that I want to do, like you know, cooking like medieval stuff. I um, and I have a wonderful friend who's a blacksmith who literally builds me things that I need. So um, uh, yeah, Iron Age crafts. He's very great, um, and he's in Ukraine actually, so it's a little hard to get a hold of these days. But um, he's uh, he's helped me before. So that's so awesome. I'm just in awe, truly. Um, and this past summer, you went on a trip. Um, I don't want to say more because I don't want to butcher the details, but I do want um, you to highlight it here uh, to our audience because I know about it. I saw your summer presentation and you mentioned it again today. So can you um, expand on that? 
Yeah, so I had the wonderful opportunity of working with Dr. Pete Sinelli um, here at UCF. I was uh, I went on his uh, field school uh, trip um, as a graduate intern um, uh, to the Turks and Caicos Islands um, to uh, help excavate his site, Palmetto Junction. And what we were excavating was a Taino Lucayan uh, earth oven. So basically, it's um, the uh, these peoples in uh, the Bahama Archipelago would come to the specific site um, and gather, you know, 200, 300 uh, people. Crowds and they would cook on this giant platform of stones that had been processed in a way that each individual stone was about two to three inches wide. So we were excavating this and I needed a deliverable for my internship. And it was like, hey, what can we do? And he was like, well, you know how to cook outside. Do you want to do you want to cook? And I was like, of course I want to cook. I, I'll take any opportunity to do that. So using non-cultural material, um, we found, you know, cast off stones and stuff in rubbish piles um, that were not cultural material. And um, we rebuilt the earth oven on the Selena. And then we, um, well, first we cooked hot dogs to, to get the fire going because it was, you know, fun. And then, um, and then I got the chance to um, process and cook uh, yucca tubers, um, which was really interesting because a lot of people don't know this, but there are two different varieties of, of yucca. And um, you have to, they have, there's a sweet one and a bitter one and one is slightly poisonous so you actually have to cook them and process them to make them edible um so it was a little it was something that i hadn't really worked with before um because i uh, i just am not really familiar with cooking tubers on open fire um i've used uh you know i've used them in stews and stuff before but not in their own skin so it was a really interesting very exciting and a little bit scary uh experience and then um when we finished cooking them we actually had some leftovers and so we uh we took them back to the hotel where we were where we were staying and i turned them into a soup that i fed the dig team dinner with that night awesome i gotta try your food one day you know this is i gotta taste it uh um but uh i want to ask two more questions the first one is where does um your project, this project currently stand and what aspirations um, do you have for not just this project, but your career in this field in the future? So the wonderful thing about being a, uh, about my career at least is like, I'm in my first semester of graduate school. Um, and so a lot of this work um, that I've done with like my background and everything has come from, you know, undergraduate research and internships, which I think any undergraduate student should, should do. Like you can do it just because graduate is not, you know, the entire part of your title doesn't mean that you can't just engage in the historical community because you absolutely can and you should. Um, and so I'm, I'm really glad that like with, now that I'm in graduate school, I have um, I have the ability to do more networking outside of because I'm not in you know five classes a week anymore, <laughs> um, and uh, and so utilizing that uh, that um, free time that I now have, I'm able to uh, to do more researching and reach out to people who are in this field um, and who have more experience than I have. Um, and I, I hope to continue to do that, and I, I would like to continue to um, build up uh, a, a community here at um, at UCF, and then you know, like for my own net social network um, throughout you know the South and the United States to to continue studying American nineteenth century cooking. Um, and then my own aspirations. I mean, I would like to you know finish my MA um, here and. Um, maybe go on to do a PhD somewhere, um, but I definitely want to continue in food history. Um, I'm also really into medieval food systems and agriculture, which is a lot of people are um, kind of like really in America, but um, I mean, the internet's everywhere. So I think that, you know, there's gotta be a program out there that I can that I can get into and, you know, do more. <laughs> For sure. Um, you kind of answered um, 
this last question I was going to ask ask you um, if you have any advice for undergraduate history students, not just here in UCF, but anywhere. Um. Yeah, well, like I said, Daya, definitely get involved. The other thing, too, is um, I have found that doing work at museums is really wonderful, and a lot of local museums are in desperate need of people. And uh, I think that a lot of people think that you have to have a master's degree to work at a museum, um, but in history, you really don't. I was working at museums before I had a bachelor's degree. The important thing is to start volunteering at, at your museum at any level, at any capacity, because in the museum field, the way to get a job is to know people. And I know that's people are going to be like, oh, but that's not how it works. But that is how it works. And it, I mean, it may seem unfair, but but that's the truth. So if you want in this field, you need to know people. And you do that by showing people that you can do the work before they pay you for it. Well, you gained a fan follower here. I'm excited to, to hear about all your future endeavors. Um, that was Sarah. Uh, thank you again for taking the short time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here. I'm Chris Mindel. I teach at the University of South Florida St. Petersburg campus, where I also direct the Florida Studies Program. Hi, I'm Scott French. I'm an associate professor of history here at University of Central Florida. Uh, Chris Mindel and Dr. Scott French uh, were part of session seven, uh, panel 14, which was titled Roundtable on Graduate Education and the Future of History. Um, I would like for both of you to um, briefly explain some of the main highlights and focal points of this panel presentation. So we'll start with you and you can pass it. Well, I think one of the things that came out was that uh, COVID had certainly become a big deal, and it's too early to tell whether those uh, whether that has created permanent damage. Uh, but some people wondered if uh, perhaps a lack of attention to writing over that time had become an issue. Certainly, uh, uh, a lack of personal interaction at conferences has almost certainly been an issue. Um, at least that's uh, that, that's what I got out of it. On the plus side, uh, during COVID, we had a lot more uh, open conferences. Uh, programs would uh, announce that they were having a seminar and invite anyone anywhere to attend. And, and I think a lot of us got to sort of listen in and participate in conferences we never would have gone to. And uh, that kind of took became another kind of social networking um, via Zoom. Uh, so that was, I thought, on the plus side, that was good. And I think that for me, uh, COVID reminded us of the need to check in with our students, um, particularly graduate students. And uh, I know that that practice of checking in is going to continue beyond. And even as things sort of normalize, I know that I now sort of have to routinely do that. It, it's important. Probably should have been doing it before. Um, a point that you mentioned, um, Chris Mindel, that I want to elaborate on, I think it was a very interesting point, was that the caring currency is about demonstrating competence and not certainly about the location of the degree. I found that fascinating. And I think I, I see that not just with history degrees, but also in other um, professions, 
that um, it doesn't really matter where you get the degree as long as you show competence. Can you expand that uh, for our listeners? I find that very interesting and important. Well, it seems to me, at least from a history perspective, demonstrating competence means being able to express yourself clearly in writing. And, uh, and, and it need not necessarily be limited to writing. It could be the, the development of displays in a museum. Um, uh, it, it seems to me that those are perhaps the most crucial things. But one might also add to that uh, the depth of one's research and being able to tap primary sources and being able to clearly delineate uh, primary from the secondary sources, uh, mastering secondary literature, and being able to contextualize a problem. I mean, all of that is part of at least what I think of when I think about uh, uh, demonstrating competence. I think you can uh, bring that all together in the concept of a portfolio, that when you are in graduate school, um, you should be working toward developing that portfolio. And uh, to the extent that you can, it should be digital, right? You can highlight the work you've done um, in public or in your writing. Um, and increasingly, that website that you create, your scholarly website, is going to be your calling card. Um, and we should take advantage of that, right? So um, I, I like to emphasize that, that, that and I, I have a son who's an undergrad, and so I tell him, you need to start working on that now. Um, uh, a point that I want both of you to chime in on, um, this point that was consistently mentioned throughout the panel was the flexibility of a history degree. Now, uh, Dr. French, you specifically mentioned how it's hard in this day and age to be a quote unquote ivory tower professor. Um, can you expand on that, uh, on that notion? I think it's important for all of us who work in the field of history to, uh, to make the case for the importance of what we do, uh, to think historically and, um, to, to have conversations with the public about why history matters. And so, uh, even if we are trained as traditional academics and have not learned how to do, um, you know, build a website or do a podcast, um, we still are going to be asked to uh, explain why the work we do matters. And so that might involve writing an op-ed in a very traditional way for a newspaper. Um, it might involve being interviewed by the local radio station, but um, we have to be aware of our public audience, especially at public institutions like the University of Central Florida and the University of South Florida. Uh, we, have a, we have a purpose. We are here in some ways uh, to benefit the public, and uh, we want to show impact. We want to show that we do uh, reach people beyond our classes, I think. I, I, it's very important, of course, that we, we teach well and that the students who are in our classes uh, are being trained and, and learning. Um, but I do think our audience is much bigger than that. It also seems to me that uh, there is a, a significant demand for the skills of historians or people trained in history the ability to write well means that you've got the ability to think clearly and to organize information in a way that other people can understand. And that's not always common out of people who major in other fields. And a range of businesses appreciate that kind of 
uh, a skill. And so I think history majors uh, ought not sell themselves short in terms of the range of occupations they could conceivably uh, uh, take on. Yeah, as an undergrad uh, history student myself, um, I've already had a, a lot of confidence, um, and that's mainly comes from not just myself, but from professors that I've been able to connect with. But leaving your panel presentation, I that confidence increased again because you guys really highlighted the value of a history degree and the skills that come with getting that degree. So uh, my final question for both of you would be, what do you see in the future of history? My my first thought is that it's going to become much more clear uh, about the range of different things that historians are going to contribute to. Right now, people just think historians do nothing but teach, but I think it's going to become progressively more clear over time as people with history backgrounds take on a, a wider variety of roles and do so in prominent fashion. Well, I'm director of public history, so I, I think a lot about the, the various uh, ways in which uh, history can ta be applied in the world. And um, so I think in the future, our students are going to come out of an undergraduate education with exposure to a lot of these kind of public history methods, oral history, uh, museum curation, uh, archival work, uh, as alongside, complementary to their traditional academic studies. Um, and some of them will choose to go on and get graduate educations. And then, you know, it may be that they choose to pursue those things as careers. But in any case, uh, they will be learning how to communicate in a wide variety of media, right? It's not simply going to be in writing, although how that is vitally important that they get that right. Um, but they will also have to learn how to write succinctly, uh, they will have to learn how to speak extemporaneously, and um, they're going to have to maybe be on camera on occasion. <laughs> All of these things are part of professionalization, and I know in our department at UCF, we have a course on professionalization, and we are trying to bring that into the education of undergraduates, learning how to communicate via email with a professor or reach out to someone who's a specialist, uh, a museum curator, how to write that email, um, how to create a, a resume. Things like that. Very important. Thank you both for sitting down with me and having this quick uh, uh, little chat interview with me. I really appreciate it. And I feel so enlightened. And like I said, my confidence just goes up because I, I agree with both with both with what both of you have said in um, professionalizing the history degree and the important skills that come with it. So thank you both. My pleasure. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it once again. Double whammy, you know. It's it's great. It was fun. Um, the next pod, which will come out tomorrow, will feature the full podcast interview with Allison Mitchell. And it was an amazing interview, amazing conversation we had. So come back to this feed once again. It's a weekend extravaganza, as they would say. So... Come back tomorrow to this feed to check out episode 23, which is um, Allison Mitchell podcast interview, uh, this year's Gerald Schaffner lecture. So I hope you all enjoyed this day two and also day one. If you haven't checked out day one, go check it out. Um, it was great. So for Night's History Cast, 
I'm Sebastian Garcia. Please subscribe to this podcast feed. And I'll see you on the next episode tomorrow. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.